Hi, this is Adrian, host of Most Popular. Before I get to my interview with Juliet Burton, it occurred to me after we spoke that we had mentioned being on lockdown and being in quarantine, um, and not mentioned the coronavirus that has led us to be on lockdown and in quarantine. Uh, so as you're listening to the episode, please know that's what we're referencing. But in that same sense, I wanted to make sure that there were a few resources available for anybody listening who wants to get some facts or some more information. So if you're listening in the U.S., in America, uh, you can check out the Johns Hopkins University in Medicine website, which is coronavirus.jhu.edu. That's C-O-R-O-N-A-V-I-R-U-S dot J-H-U dot E-D-U. And if you're listening around the world, please check out the World Health Organization website at who.int. Thank you so much for listening to this episode with the lovely Juliet Burton, and I hope you're all taking care. Welcome to Most Popular. My guest today is Juliet Burton. Juliet is an award-winning comedian, actress, journalist, and writer. She's performed one-woman shows at Edinburgh Fringe, most of which have sold out, as well as comedy festivals all around the world. She's appeared on the BBC, the BBC Radio, and created the Positive Mental Attitude podcast. She's dedicated much of her life to speaking about and educating people on mental health, particularly after being sanctioned under the UK Mental Health Act at the age of 17. She is incredibly accomplished, and it is my pleasure to welcome her. So welcome to Most popular, Juliet. Thank you so much. Um, that sounds like somebody who is much more successful than I feel. So thank you very much for introducing <laughs> me that way. <laughs> I think we all almost, especially women, we all have that reaction when we hear our accomplishments mm-hmm. laid out for us. Um, mm, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to own my accomplishments right now. So um, yes, that is me. And that is what I've done. And thank you so much for reminding <laughs> me of it. Um, let's talk a little bit about your background. So what led you to doing comedy? How did you develop into doing one woman shows and being a comedian? Sure. Well, I um, I mean, there's a couple of things that led me mainly into doing it. Um, so I used to be a journalist uh, and um, I was only a journalist because um, I have always loved communication. Mm-hmm. And um, I went to uh, went to a couple of uh, schools in, in the UK that um, sort of put me on this conveyor belt if I was going to um, get straight A's all of my exams and go straight to Oxford or Cambridge and become a lawyer. And that was the narrative that I was told I was going to lead, um, the life that I was going to lead. But I felt like I didn't really belong on that conveyor belt. And um, uh, combined with lots of other nuanced things that I'm sure that we'll talk about, I became very ill. I didn't get any um, A-levels. Um, or any of I didn't go to uh, Oxford or Cambridge um, and I only uh, managed to get into university to study journalism um, after being in and out of hospital about four or five times um, as a teenager Uh, and I did uh, get in eventually to study journalism on the strength of a written application and then doing journalism led me to doing uh, working in radio uh, and that led me to do voiceover work which led me to do acting which led me to realize that as a woman if I wanted to have a decent role I needed to write my own roles because <laughs> uh, I kept being cast as love interest or sex interest and that just isn't who I naturally am and I have more stories to tell than that so I started writing and then naturally found that comedy was the perfect pairing for me because um, a lot of my life experiences uh, tend to make people a little bit tense when I talk about them because they're not 
uh, they're not the thing, the kind of experiences that most of us perhaps have experienced, but there's no shame in them at all. So uh, I find that the best way to break the tension is to make people laugh. And I realised that if I was going to talk about difficult subjects and hopefully make some people feel less alone with their own experiences, then if I helped people laugh about my personal experiences then uh, it helped break down those barriers it increased understanding for people who didn't have any prior understanding and for people who perhaps have lived experience of mental illness uh, the laughter helped them feel less alone as well so as well as for me like I felt less alone if I was hearing a room full of people laughing with me at my at my jokes that means that um, it, it made, made it feel like I had a purpose and for me the opposite of depression isn't happiness the opposite of depression is purpose mm. Um, can you talk a little bit about what led you to being sanctioned for, for students or for people listening in America? It's kind of like being committed to a mental hospital um, in the States. But can you explain what led you there? Sure. So in the UK, we call it sectioned. You're yeah. sectioned um, under the Mental Health Act. Um and yes, in other countries, I've performed in New Zealand and Australia. And over there, I believe it's, again, committed or detained. Mm -hmm. um, so it's where you get your um, your legal rights, your human rights to uh, to freedom, freedom of movement and all that. It's, they're all taken away. So um, it, it's an involuntary uh, hospitalisation. Um, so I, it was explained to me that... Um, I think in the UK, uh, the reason you'd get sectioned is a, a similar legal phrase that I believe your president has used recently um, <laughs> to talk about certain people who perhaps it's not quite the right phrasing to be using. But um, it's if you are a danger unto yourself or others, that mm -hmm. is the legal phrase that is used when you are sectioned, detained or committed. Mm -hmm. um, and I was a, uh, a danger unto myself um, and I was deemed a danger unto myself by, I believe it was two or three different um, doctors and uh, and then two or three people who know me personally. So I believe it was both of my parents who were involved in me being sectioned. Um, and it was because I was a month away from dying of anorexia. So um, mm -hmm. the, although anorexia actually looking retrospectively wasn't my first experience of mental illness it was my first diagnosis and um, in my teens it was the one that dominated my not only my my treatment but also my identity because it was my formative years and I was trying to find out who I who I was like mm -hmm. we all are during those years um, but I kept being told and kept reaffirming through my behavior that I was uh, anorexic um, and I it took me a, many many years beyond that especially using my comedy shows to explore um, identity and unpick um, our, the, the way that I'd misdirected my identity into being ill um, and actually there are so many other aspects of who we are um, who I am now is a uh, absolutely a part of who I am now is because of uh, my mental illnesses but also I am who I am in spite of my mental illnesses um, they've taught me my empathy and my uh, my fortitude my resilience um, all of those things my um, my uh, tenaciousness um, those are all things that I don't think I would have uh, owned or felt like uh, they they saved me they, they wouldn't have curated those aspects of my personality were it not for uh, the mental illnesses um, but yes yeah, so I was sectioned for anorexia um the doctors had said that um i was if i carried on my behavior i um that i had been exhibiting i, I would unfortunately uh, die mm -hmm. um and at the time when i was told that um honestly uh, my thought was well yeah that's kind of the point um it didn't scare <laughs> yeah. it didn't scare me it was like well yeah i by that point the uh, the illness the disease had taken a very firm grip on my on my mind and my behavior and um, yeah, it didn't scare me. The idea of dying um, 
it was a way of coping. I, I, I firmly believe that mental illness is not a weakness or a fragility. Um, it is a an incredibly creative way for our minds to survive the deep emotional distress that we otherwise might not survive. So um, my anorexia, just like all my other diagnoses, and I've had I've got lots of other um, diagnosed mental health conditions, but every single one of those um, is a way that my mind has created um, it's a survival technique. It was a way of, of managing this, these unmanageable emotions and thoughts and feelings um, that felt overwhelming and would have completely, I would have submerged within those thoughts and feelings in other ways had my mind not created this um, unhealthy. I'm not, I'm, I mean, it might sound like I'm saying that these things are, are good things, but I, I think they are uh, forgivable and understandable um, as disordered ways of thinking and disordered ways of behaving. Um, but they, they, they actually did in many ways keep me alive, um, for, um, unsustainably, but they, but they, they did actually mean that I could manage, um, unhealthily the, um, feelings that I was feeling. Do you feel like, um, it feels like it's sort of, from what you're saying, it sounds like it sort of drives you like this is, sort of like what puts the gas in your engine and helps you to keep moving forward and that you see them as more empowering am i am i reaching for that i'd say i'd say that my my illnesses are not the 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 gas in the engine i'd say the um the gas in the engine is the uh the need to communicate and they need mm, to be on mm -hmm. the need to uh to not only be understood but also to understand and um i think comedy like performing to audiences having community reaching audiences um hearing them laugh uh is is a huge um drive for me and a reason to get out of bed my illnesses they they have um they're a double-edged sword, you know, they, yeah. um, they, they are things that, um, I think, uh, I shouldn't have any shame about. And I know that a lot of people struggle with very similar, um, experiences to me. Um, and what drives me is I, the need to reach out and help other people not feel as alone as I have felt with those illnesses. Um, and that's why I think comedy, again, going back to communication, comedy is such an amazing art, art form and an amazing way to, uh, use brevity and language to change people's minds through uh, laughter. Um, I think a, a very well-formed joke is a way of um, uh, changing somebody's perception. For example, one of my favourite jokes of mine that is um, uh, is in my my favourite sets um, is about me being sectioned. Um, there's a pub chain in the UK called Weatherspoons, um, so it's uh, it uses that uh, pub chain, uh, which is basically it's it's kind of a it's a very well-known pub chain. Uh, perhaps <laughs> I've been to a few um, bars in America that uh, perhaps are similar. Basically, imagine lots of sticky floors. And, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Nuts maybe, on the floor. Maybe, I get it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you get it. You, you've got the image in your mind. So uh, what I say in this joke is um, when I was, uh, I spent my 18th birthday sectioned under the Mental Health Act in hospital. My sister spent her 18th birthday drunk under a table in Weatherspoons. <laughs> and I think I actually had the better venue. Um <laughs> And yeah. for me, what I like, what, what, why I like that joke is that because it, it takes something that perhaps would cause tension in somebody's minds, you know, that sort of sharp intake of breath of, oh, she's been sectioned under the Mental Health Act, detained or committed. She Is she clinically insane? Oh, tense. Um, then sets it in contrast to, well, my sister had this perhaps more in inverted commas normal experience. Um, and actually, I think that maybe if you spun it on its head, um, there's actually nothing unusual about me having my experience. So um, that's why comedy is, is such a beautiful mm -hmm. use of communication and language to change people's perceptions.
Um, in Nanette, Hannah Gadsby does a really good section yeah. on how she explains the tension and yeah. what the tension means. And, and depending on the joke and the listener, who's hearing the tension and how it, it uh, adjusts for the person. Um, so I saw the butterfly effect in 2018 in Edinburgh. And um, I was struck by two things. Um, two, well, two things stood out to me. One was that... Uh, your effort to spread kindness. Um, so you did a segment in it where you cut to video of yourself doing kind things around, um, was it UK that you did nice stuff for people or complimented people or? Yes. Yeah. yeah it was a kind of a quest for kindness. I was trying to do kind acts every single day in the show Butterfly Effect to try to prove to myself as much as anybody, the power that a small act of kindness can have to change somebody's world for the better. But then you also, is it every show you've had people write notes to you? Like every one woman show or has it just been the butterfly effect and then this last one you did? Um, so I kind of like doing something where it's like a, an activism angle of a show to sort of get the audience involved and get them thinking. So it's not such a passive audience experience. It's more of a look, we're in this together. We're a team. Mm -hmm. It's not just me up here entertaining you and then you going away and not thinking about this again. Um, so with Butterfly Effect, I asked people to uh, write down an idea, um, as you know, Adrian, um, write down an idea for a random act of kindness. And uh, they would then uh, hand in those ideas of a random act of kindness. And those uh, ideas would then be passed on to future audience members at future shows mm -hmm. to encourage them to say, right, I'm going to do this. This person has dared me to do this act of kindness and uh, I'm going to take up take up that baton so it was kind of like a um to mix my metaphors it was kind of an, a Mexican wave of uh, kindness across the world is what <laughs> I was imagining it being mm -hmm. um and in uh, my other shows I've had other things that I've asked people to do like um I've asked people in a previous show to tell me what they think uh, beauty is like tell me on on social media um what the most amazing thing about their bodies are and what what their definition of beautiful is um and in my most recent show um, which was on tour before uh, lockdown happened and it will be res resumed again um, once lockdown is lifted um, it's called defined and you can watch it and also you will be able to watch butterfly effect um, as well on next up comedy so if you go to nextupcomedy.com forward slash amazing juliet then you can watch my shows there um but in defined i asked people to define themselves in five words um, and I also on tour was asking people to define the places that I was touring as well in five words um, to try to help us um, examine like how how we define ourselves, what words we use to define um, ourselves and each other um, and whether we can break free of those labels and whether they actually are labels that we want to own uh, and that can help us or do they hinder us. So um, but it also Kate, has come in that audience members have come up with some hilarious responses to yeah. uh, the five word definitions as well. I was going to ask, is there any that stand out to you? <laughs> oh, God, loads. Um, I'm, well, during lockdown, I'm releasing these little tour tasters of mm -hmm. um, some of the, some of the um, videos of the audio of uh, some of my shows. Um, and, yeah, I think there's been loads. Um, there's been some fantastic ones like uh, people saying, um, oh, God, I'm trying to think of my absolute favorite ones. I mean, one, one guy in Edinburgh said um, free, free for dinner on Friday, which was very flirty of him. <laughs> Um, there was, uh, there've been people who have defined themselves as, um, uh, uh, fourth from right, second row, uh, <laughs> which I thought was very uh, thinking outside the box. Um, yeah, that's very random. 
<laughs> yeah, but I, I think it's it's really useful to kind of examine how we define ourselves. Like, do we define ourselves by our relationships with our family, with our friends, um, with our jobs? Um, you know, are you are you your job? Are you uh, the way you look? Are you what what is it about yourself that you want to own and identify with? Because I think nowadays, especially with um, things like the Equality Act um, of uh, 20, uh, 2010 um, in the UK, that is being looked at at the moment. Well, it was before lockdown to see whether it needs to be updated. Um, and there's lots of different groups of people um, that perhaps over the last decade, um, we've been able to talk about more and and, and vocalise their experiences, including men- those with mental illness. Um, there's other groups, you know, the um, the BAME groups, the LGBTQ plus groups, um, mm-hmm. all of these groups of people that I I adore because I think we can see similarities between uh, these groups and the experiences that they're having and the fact that they feel like they've been silenced in the past. Um, And actually now we're trying to move towards perhaps a better time where people's uh, things that people perhaps in the past, um, say 50 years ago, um, some people would say we need to cure the differences in ourselves in society. And now we're actually celebrating them. Um, And I think that mental illness and disability, physical disability um, and also learning difficulties and um, all of these neurodiverse groups as well, um, instead of curing um, or kind of trying to become in inverted commas normal, instead we're celebrating more and more the fact that we can learn from the differences and, and also focus on the similarities because we're all human and we're all experiencing the difficulty of what being human means. It's interesting that you bring up the evolution of mental illness. My mother's mother, so my grandmother, my maternal grandmother, was um, sanctioned or committed, or however you want to put it, in the 60s, in the 1960s. She's a schizophrenic. And she was taken to, um, I guess it'd be the equivalent of a mental hospital, Um, but she was institutionalized. And my mother has stories of going to visit her and just the the conditions that people were kept under and the very little that they knew about schizophrenia. And then to top it off, she was a woman who had had seven children. So there was probably some sort of postpartum or, you know, just lots of things being stacked on top of that. Um, And the way she was treated was not the greatest, but it was the best they could have come up with at the time, um, which doesn't make it right. But now when we look at um, people with kind of a spectrum of mental illness, there's sort of a different, I feel there's sort of a different outlook that's happening. I mean, it's still serious and we need to address it. Um, But I have seen more and more things popping up on maybe social media of people talking about that. uh, This is what makes me, me, this is what makes me special. This, this is what makes me feel um, like I'm contributing something. Um, I have a few friends with kids with autism and they choose to look at autism as this is how my child sees the world and they just see it in a way that maybe is better than um, what I see or what I do. So I I feel as though we've evolved. Um, But I think gender is a component of this that is uh, still very much in play. So when I teach about gender, I talk about how uh, historically when we had done um, either psychological or science treatments on men and women, um, historically we assumed that whatever worked for men would work for women. So whatever medication cured something in men would be the same thing for women. And of course now we know that that's not true. Um, But it's still within the last 10 years that a lot of major colleges and universities in the U.S. that were doing these treatments were saying if it works on men, it works on women. And of course... Uh, men and women are different. So I did a little reading. I looked at the World Health Organization um, and 
they talked a lot about how mental illness in women becomes a web because it's not just the mental illness. It's that women are more likely to earn less money than men. So therefore paying for treatment or going to therapy or doing anything along those lines becomes more dicey. Um, and that there's ongoing debates in America uh, about what insurance should cover and shouldn't cover depending on what's happening with you. Um, what do you think, well, let me ask this. What do you think um, are the biggest barriers people face when they're trying to have a healthy mental state so what are the biggest barriers that people face when they're trying to have a, a healthy mental state yeah um i think one of the biggest barriers i mean there's there's lots of barriers um but one of the biggest barriers that i'm kind of interested in at the moment is um this idea of uh, them versus us so the mentally mm. ill versus the mentally un um the men mentally healthy and the fact is that all of us have mental health just like all of us have physical health um so some of us uh have good mental health days and bad mental health days some of us develop a short-term mental illness and sometimes we might with the right treatment and medication uh that might be something that we fully recover from others might have a long-term lifelong mental health condition that we learn to manage for the rest of our lives sometimes well sometimes less well um, just just like with a physical health condition. So one of the biggest barriers, I think, is the idea that um, is the idea that either either mental illness is um, a weakness or it's um, something that some people some people have mental illness and others don't. Mm -hmm. um, whereas it, it's a natural part. Like we, we all have mental well-being. Um, so being able to look after your mental well-being, be able to be mentally healthy. Um, I think it's as difficult and nuanced as being physically healthy. Like I, I've, I know that I haven't ever met anybody who's never had a physical illness. We've all had colds mm -hmm. and the flu. Um, and it would be wonderful if we started to embrace the fact that maybe we all have struggles with our mental health at some point in our lives. Um, more increasingly now, I, I, nowadays I'm seeing my most, in inverted commas, mentally healthy friends, as in people who haven't ever had a, an official diagnosis, they're still struggling with their mental health now and they're, they're more aware of that. Um, and I think that is an interesting thing, as you say, more and more people on social media are being open, uh, more and more celebrities are being open about um, having mainly anxiety or depression. Um, but we still have a long way to go in embracing perhaps the more, um, the more classically uh, feared um, mental illnesses. Yeah. Um, so the ones on the, I, I don't think it's useful to kind of say that they're more acute or more severe mm -hmm. because mental illness and is illness, pain is pain. There's no comparison really when it comes to these, these issues. However, um, things like schizophrenia, like, um, you've, you mentioned about your relative, um, having schizophrenia is something that I know in the UK, um, is still very, uh, stigmatized mm -hmm. and, um, that I know there's been some call, cool, uh, in recent years for uh, people to consider renaming the, the condition um, because the word itself is so stigmatized and people are scared to admit to having it. Really? Um, yeah, I mean, I personally, I've, I haven't been diagnosed with schizophrenia ever, but I have had experience with hallucinations. So when I was sectioned, um, I had a psychosis, um, as you know, because I talk about it in Butterfly Effect. Um, so I had uh, hallucinations that lasted for about two to three months. Um, and I had lots of experiences during that time. So um, the people I've met since then who have got uh, schizophrenia as uh, a diagnosis, we've been able to talk about our experiences of hallucinations. And there are some similarities, again, um, between a short term psychosis uh, with hallucinations and a, a long term 
uh, yeah. condition like schizophrenia. Um, and I think that people people are more and more willing to listen uh, to people's experiences um, if we're brave enough to either. Firstly, we need to either have people who are brave enough to speak out and we also need people who are brave enough to ask the questions. And one of my favorite things is when people ask me the difficult questions about my mental health uh, experiences, because there's no wrong questions to ask. The only wrong thing in my book is not asking the question in the first place. <laughs> um, let's shift gears just a little bit. Uh, sure. Women in comedy that you love, anybody that really stands out to you or that you really look up to? Do you know, honestly, whenever I get asked um, who are your favourite comedians, I, I naturally reel off a list of women because women are hilarious. And <laughs> it's it's only been because of uh, society kind of ring-fencing this boys' club for so many decades of, you know, old, old comedy clubs where men belittle women <laughs> um, and therefore women, it's not a place for women to be. Um Nowadays, I'm like, I, all my favorite comedians are women, um, from Dawn French, who uh, inspired me massively when I was a kid um, with her acting roles in various sitcoms, um, to like up, up and coming amazing stars. Like in the UK, there's um, Beck Hill. Uh, she's fantastic. Suze Kempner, um, S-O-O-Z Kempner. She's amazing. Um, and yeah, I think there's, there's just so many uh, amazing women who support each other, because I think in comedy more than, well, more than any other part of my own life women want to build other women up because it's not a competition we're, we're paving the way for each other and holding lights for each other to help each other um get 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 heard get seen and comedy does give women an empowered voice more than more than any other place in my life again it's it's so true and um as as we talk i'm working on a book about women in comedy with with a colleague um and we've been re-watching as much as we can on Netflix and, um, you know, trying to digest things. And I've found that the, the most women in their standup at some point talk about how difficult it has been to be a woman in comedy or just the, the unique challenges that they face. And that shows you that this is, this is a common theme. This is something that has um, been appearing. Uh, I've never heard of Dawn French. I'm going to look her up when we are done she's she's amazing she's not she's not technically a stand-up as such but she used to perform with french and saunders with um with jennifer saunders um oh and, yeah 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 yeah. Uh, and she also i would highly recommend on netflix she is in the vicar of dibley which is one of my favorite sitcoms of all time um it is so beautiful uh and if you want a glimpse into my kind of childhood it's all about a, a English village, uh, very um, prim and proper and stiff upper lip. And here comes this very socialist um, vicar <laughs> uh, who happens to be a woman and uh, shakes things up. And uh, yeah, I, I think I think that's another beautiful thing is that with comedy, um, yeah, I, I I grew up in a in a in a community where perhaps my voice uh, was a little bit different to the people around me and um, as much as I loved and respected those people around me I couldn't wait to find a place where I could explore um, other voices and um, books did that for me comedy did that for me um, I, I consumed comedy as a teenager as a way to cope with all of the darkness in my mind it was really important for me to find things that are joyful and things things that uh, point out the ludicrousy of, of just being alive and like 
the, the ridiculousness of of the of the human condition um and comedy absolutely opened all those doors for me um so yeah being able to stand up in front of a room full of people not only in the UK on tour but um yeah in other countries as well and be able to have this strong voice and have this whole room full of people sit there and want to listen to what I have to say is just it's the most empowering, liberating uh, experience that I've ever had. And if I can also empower and liberate other people who are sitting there listening to me, then that is that's that makes everything worthwhile. It makes all of my experiences, all of the difficulty of managing all these cast of illnesses in my mind. It, all of that's worthwhile if somebody in that audience is entertained, informed and empowered. And don't forget sold out audiences. <laughs> uh, yeah, maybe, Normally honestly, sold out. <laughs> Uh, sometimes sold out um, but honestly like I, I think all of the sold out laurels and in in the past few years at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival all the sold out shows they mean nothing unless the, the next show I have a lovely group of wonderful people and every single ticket every single person individual person who has bought a ticket to that show is an absolute legend and hero whether they're sitting in a sold out crowd or whether they're sitting in a room of just me and them it doesn't matter it's still they're my heroes so but yeah I would be nothing without them yes but don't sell yourself short I watched you outside the gilded balloon you hustle <laughs> you hand out those flyers you talk to everybody you hustle so don't don't sell yourself short on that that was well, well done thank you um but when I honestly when I talk to people when I'm flyering and I hand out my my leaflets at, at mm-hmm. the Edinburgh Fringe Festival or anywhere else it's mainly because I I would be feeling alone if I wasn't chatting to people so <laughs> um yeah I'd much rather chat to people and say hey do you want to come and see a show and uh, oh let me recommend this other show and let me recommend this restaurant to you and hey where are you from and how are you feeling today I'd much rather do that than uh, be sitting backstage just fretting about the show that's coming up that's wonderful, though. It makes a difference. I mean, I had several people hand me flyers, just sort of shove them at me. And I was going, ah, this is too much. You're too much in my space for me to accept what you've just given me. Okay. Yeah. So there is one question I ask everybody. And um, if you can't think of anything or if you you know, want me to cut it out, I can do that. Um, but the one question I ask everyone is, who or what do you think deserves to be voted most popular? Out of everything in the world? Anything you could possibly think of. Who or what should be voted most popular? Who or what should be voted most popular? Um, hmm, Wow. Most popular. I I don't know why my mind's turning towards this right now, but um, there's one thing that gets me through even the darkest, darkest, darkest of days, and that is gratitude. Mm. So um, as 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 light and airy and as, as it might sound, it really has a lot of depth. Um, so I'd say uh, gratitude, uh, being able to focus on gratitude. Uh, if I could if I could make that most popular in my life, um, then I would be I would be steering towards many more better health, mental health days than worse mental health days. So uh, let's go for gratitude. Although I feel like I could come up with a funnier answer than that. Um, <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> but that, that might be a helpful answer rather than a humorous one. <laughs> I had someone shout out chocolate on one on one <laughs> podcast. So, I mean, it, it's really anything you can think of. Uh, for me, I went from a size four to a size 20. So a size zero for American sizes, uh, I think up to, a, is it a size, a size zero up to a size oh, 16 or something? Yeah. Basically, I went from one to the other in, in six months. And uh, that was all because of compulsive overeating disorder. So me and chocolate have a very, very difficult relationship. Um, <laughs> So, yeah, I would say popular chocolate is not necessarily popular or too, is too popular in my head. It's an obsession at the moment. 
especially as we're all on lockdown for coronavirus. Yes, my coronavirus dreams are very vivid and they're mainly about food at the moment, but that's what you get when you have eating disorders. Yeah. Um, where can everyone find you? What's your social media handles? <laughs> I was about to give you my address then. Um, <laughs> okay, so my social media handles, you can find me on my website, which is um, julietteburton.co.uk. Um, so that's J-U-L-I-E-T-T-E-B-U-R-T-O-N.co.uk. Um, you can find me on Twitter at Juliette Burton, um, again, spelled the same. Uh, on Instagram, it's Juliet underscore Burton. And on Facebook, it's Juliet Burton, writer, performer. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, I'm on Next Up Comedy. So if you have a look at nextup.com, sorry, nextupcomedy.com forward slash Amazing Juliet, then you can have a little watch of some of my shows there. Sure. I think I forgot one other. My YouTube channel as well. Oh, uh, my YouTube yeah. channel is a uh, YouTube channel is um, the Juliet Burton. Um, so YouTube dot com forward slash the Juliet Burton. So basically, if you're on the Internet, there's no reason you cannot find this woman somewhere. Just <laughs> somewhere. Somewhere. <laughs> OK, well, thank you so much for doing this. And I just appreciate it so much. And I wish you the best as you're continuing lockdown. Thank you. And you too. Um, yeah, it is a new challenge for everybody to manage their mental well-being and their perspective. Um, but also, I think we're all learning a lot and adapting. And for me, creativity is what is getting me through. So stay creative. Wonderful. Thank you, Juliet. Thank you. Once again, thank you so much to my lovely guest, Juliet Burton. I'm Adrienne Trierbenik. If you want to learn more about me or hear more podcasts, you can go to the website, which is www.mostpopularpod.com. That's mostpopularpodpod.com. Thank you so much for listening. Bye.